a human being was stoned to death in the name of religion. And that could have been from Christianity Today this past week or from any newspaper around the world. Um, a person was killed because of their religion. Um, I spend a lot of time with young adults around there getting married, and one of the things you always ask them is religious affiliation because the registrar wants to know what their denomination is as we fill out the marriage license. And almost to a person, they will say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And one of the reasons that um, they say that sort of thing is that when we think about religion in the history of the world, almost all of the trouble can be traced back to religion. Rightly or wrongly, people look back and say, religion, hmm, that's a charged word. That's a difficult word. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in God. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in spirituality. But to say I am religious would be biting off, I think, more than I can chew. We are looking at the early church and tracking with the other participants in 40 Acts. And we come in Acts chapter 8 to a real turning point in the history of that early church. Here's what we read. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen, the one that had just been stoned to death um, for religious reasons. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul of Tarsus was his name. As a young man, he stood at the edge of the crowd while they were stoning Stephen to death and gave his assent. Um, Saul, by all accounts, was um, a sharp-looking man, not sharp in a good sense, but sharp in a gaunt sense. Um, he is said to have had a thick, bushy eyebrow, just the one, from side to side. That he had a look of purposefulness about him, and that he was highly agitated in much of his affect. And while he is still in his formation, he stands at the edge of a crowd who are stoning a Christian to death and gives his nod. What God was up to is fascinating. And when I cite that, that a person is being stoned to death for religious reasons, it brings us right up to date and we think, look at us all around us in our world. There are people who are losing their lives for religious reasons. And we look over the last several decades that we have been familiar with and we know that in those decades there have been scores and hundreds and thousands of deaths because of religious reasons. And so we go back to this situation and we ask ourselves, what was God up to in that setting? Because it helps us bring ourselves up to date and ask the question, what's God doing now? Because this is happening in spades, just as it began in the early church. Now it is far more widespread and it is far more diverse in terms of the groups that are both perpetrating and being victimized um, for religious reasons. So where's God? 
The early apostles might have been asking that question um, because even though they had begun with a flourish and the church in Jerusalem was idyllic, they were loving their community, they were having favor with all the people. We just saw that a couple of weeks ago. All of a sudden now they're being persecuted and they're even facing martyrdom. Many of them expected it would happen to them and they got away with just a severe flogging. But now here's one of the early leaders, one of the deacons, remember, that we just saw appointed. Um, he is actually stoned to death because of his faith. And the apostles might have been wondering what God was doing and how they were going to survive. Everything changed that day in the early church. Now, to, to get our sequence in place, remember that Jesus told the disciples that they were to go and take this message to the whole world. And it's strange that the way that begins to happen is not by a great strategic plan, but actually by persecution. And it begins to sort of needle its way into the back of our minds to ask, does God actually work in situations that are totally unfavorable in, in a more effective way than in easy situations? You see, when things were going well, all of those disciples in Jerusalem were quite happy to stay put, right? They loved the potluck suppers every day. They loved going to the teachings in the temple. They loved talking and disputing over who Jesus was, what he came to do, what they were supposed to do. But they forgot for a little while that Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Milton, right? Until persecution came along. And look at what we're told about how that persecution began to work its way out. A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of what's first? Judea and Samaria. And we're just not told about the uttermost part of the earth because they didn't get there quite yet. And we're it. Or somewhere is it these days. It was by persecution that God sovereignly arranged for the growth of that early church. And right in the thick of that is this character Saul, who, who gets our attention not only because of the anger with which he carried out his business now, but because of who he became in the whole sovereign work and plan of God, um, actually a leader, the leader of the church. Who was Saul? I want us to see how immediately this is a sadly familiar story. Saul was what we today might call a radicalized ideologue. What's an ideologue? Uh, I had to look it up to get a good definition, but you know, Webster would say it's someone who is consumed with an ideology, right? And the language that we hear all around us about terrorism is the language around people who have been radicalized in, in their ideology. And so we strategize about how to de-radicalize or how we actually halt radicalization in people's minds and beliefs out of their ideology because we see that in the back of terrorism, is almost always radicalized ideology. So here is Saul, and Saul is a radicalized Pharisee. So it would not uh, be inappropriate at all 
to compare Saul to those characters that we know who are perpetrating acts of terrorism. He was a terrorist for religious reasons because he was a radicalized Pharisee. In, in the day of Saul, there were two main schools of Pharisaical thought. They followed two Pharisee leaders called Hillel and Shammai. And Hillel was the liberal in the schools of the Pharisees. And Shammai was the conservative. He was the one who was rigidly observant and who called his followers into a kind of dedication um, that we might begin to notice and call radicalization. You see, Saul was not arbitrary in going after Christians. He was radicalized. He went after Christians to kill them for religious reasons. He went after Christians to kill them because he believed God wanted him to do it. So we, we might these days try to get our heads inside the heads of terrorists who are radicalized on different ideology um, and say, these people must just be, they must just be crazy. And yet when we go back and see the case study that God gives us in the person of Saul, we would say Saul was not at all crazy. He was radicalized. He had an ideology that drove him, that got him up in the morning and kept him up late at night and sent him to city after city hunting down followers of the way to put them in prison because they were subverting God's ways. They were against the ways of God. They were against the fulfillment of what God had called his people to do. And so Saul spent his life as a radical, murdering followers of Jesus in God's name. And today, there are people who are radicalized by all sorts of ways, and they are doing similar things in terms of their behavior. As I think back over my life and talk about the, the number of sort of movements against humankind that are motivated by ideology, you know, we could take a half hour and maybe not even exhaust the list. So in my life, I remember the IRA in Belfast. I remember the UVF. That was just the equal and opposite Protestant terrorist movement. Um, we were back in Ireland a couple of years ago, and we were in a hotel in Dublin, and my boys went into the washroom and encountered what they call travelers. And travelers are people who are motivated for fighting and violence for more nefarious reasons than ideology. They were just ruffians, and the world is full of ruffians as well. But for every ruffian, there are 100 people who have a reason for what they're doing in terms of terror. I think of Nazism, I think of the Crusades, I think of the PLO, the FLQ, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, even today, Hezbollah, the Taliban, and all of these are movements that are not just ruffian movements. They are the movements of people who have an ideology to which they have committed their lives and to which many have allowed themselves to be moved into a radicalization, sort of a state of adhering to that ideology or that religion. That's who Saul was. And I think before I had the notion that Saul was, he was just a really, really good legalistic Jew. He was much more than a really, really good legalistic Jew. He was a radicalized Shammai Pharisee who was going about the business 
of destroying anybody that would stand in the way of his ideology, his religion. And that is now the behavior of so many people in our world, so that we wake up morning by morning and with dread, we wonder what has happened today. And take your pick, ask about Nigeria. What has happened in Nigeria this week that terrifies us again? What might be happening in the North American continent that we don't know about, but we wonder about, because the existence of these radicalized ideologues just seems to be surging. And we wonder, I think, along with the early apostles, what is, what is God doing in this and through this? Or why is God not doing something in this and through this? So I think we go back to the Saul of Tarsus as a primer as to how God views when people take the lives of other people for religious reasons. They're always religious reasons. At least they're stated to be religious reasons. And many of them are legitimate religious reasons because they are bona fide ideologies. For me, it was Protestantism or Catholicism, which is an embarrassment to say that it was within the Church of Jesus Christ that we allowed people to be radicalized on a Catholic or Protestant pathway through the Christian faith. Many situations today are over Islam, and there's then a reactionary movement, so we have Christ Church, which is the opposite or equal, perhaps, of Islam, saying, well, if that's the way you're going to be radicalized and terrorized, so are we. And we, 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 I think we just we shake our heads to ask the question, how are we going to survive this? How, where is this going to end up for us? So again, I think we go back to the story of Saul as a primer. And the three things that characterized um, the movement in history around the person of Saul are these. That first of all, he was a radicalized ideologue. He was not just a really good Pharisee, even though that's how he described himself. He said he was taught by Gamaliel. Well, if he was taught by Gamaliel, he would have been a much more moderate Pharisee. Because remember Gamaliel? He's the one who said, before you decide to kill these characters, let me just give a voice of reason. There have been other people like them, and they have come and gone. This will probably happen to this movement as well. So I urge you not to act too hastily, and let's just see what happens. If it is from God, you can't stop it anyway. So I urge you, and they took his advice. So when Saul later on claims that he was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, he didn't learn very well because he was much, much more radical than Gamaliel. He went to the nth degree with everything that he thought the law taught, and he would enforce that law by threat of death and by actual um, death in the event of those not paying attention to him. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on a mission, and the only thing that stopped him is that he met Jesus. And I want to talk about that today because how God sovereignly is at work in the day of modern-day terrorism is the same way that he was at work in the life of Saul of Tarsus. It is no surprise to me that terrorists are meeting Jesus because that's the way God works. God gets into the middle of human darkness and says, you wouldn't have seen this coming, but watch this. I remember sitting in Beirut on a, a balcony 
in the cool of the evening where we could look down over the whole valley of the majestic city of, of Beirut. And we were talking to a young man. Um, and the young man was, was, had been a member of the Mujahideen, so he, he was an Iranian terrorist who, by his own admission, had martyred as many Christians as he could find um, and, and put the gun to their heads. And we sat there as he told us the story of how he had converted to Christianity. And so it was Phil, again, my most interesting travel guide. Um, and Phil said, what? how did that happen? Because at this point, this young man had lost his wife and his children and his whole family. They had all rejected him. And they all would have taken his life, or many of them would have taken his life if they could have had the chance. So Phil said, you talk about meeting Isa. How did that happen? Well, he said, the way it happens with everybody that I know that's come to know Isa, we came to know him in a dream. And the first time I heard that, I, I sort of shook my head and thought, what? Does that happen? Um, my dreams are not very interesting. If they're, they're more bizarre than interesting. I certainly haven't met Jesus in my dreams. Maybe I should. Um, but person after person will say that, that they met Isa, which is Arabic for Jesus, in a dream. And he said, I was in prayer. And in my prayer, the prophets came to me. And he named the prophets that he believed had come to him in his dream. He said that Abraham had come to him. And he said that Muhammad had come to him. And he said that Isa had come to him. And Phil said, how did you know it was Isa?" He said, I was overwhelmed by his presence. I was overwhelmed by his love. I was overwhelmed by his mercy. And I knew, I knew that this was Isa." Well, how did Muhammad appear to you in the dream? It made no impact. How did Abraham appear to you in the dream? It made no impact. But Isa appeared to this young man in his dream. And this young man, who, like Saul of Tarsus, had spent his life chasing down anybody that was opposed um, to the regime, to the enforced religion, this person was willing to give up his family and his life because he was convinced that Isa is God, that Isa is the son of God. Here's Saul of Tarsus, and he is infuriated again. He's on the Damascus road because he's heard that there are Christians there, and he has letters from the chief priests. He has gone to the chief priests and said, the latest memo has informed me that in Damascus there's a gathering of these way followers. So with this persecution, they were spreading out to, to Syria, to Damascus. And he says, I want letters that authorize me to go and to find them and to imprison them. And he was granted that permission. So he was a man on a mission. And he's on the Damascus road. And all of a sudden, there is something that happens. And from heaven, there is a light that blinds him. And there is a voice that speaks to him. And he immediately knows that he has just encountered a deity or an angelic being of some kind. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And the, the voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He met Jesus. And it, it wasn't a dream for Saul because later on in 1 Corinthians, remember, he says, uh, here's how I know that Jesus 
was raised from the dead. He was seen by, and he gives the lists of witnesses. And then he says, and last of all, he was seen by me. Someone born out of due time. But he claims that what he saw was Jesus himself, that Jesus had appeared to him and stopped him in his tracks and said, you have to stop persecuting me. As you persecute my followers, so you persecute me. And then God had things all arranged. He had a person named Ananias um, who would school Saul. And Saul was quickly convinced, not that he ought to shift religion. And here's, here's something that I think is very, very important. Saul did not decide to abandon Judaism. He learned that Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic hope. He learned all of a sudden that while he had believed and had been taught that it was the nation that would be the usher for the new covenant and the new kingdom, now he knew that all that he had been expecting, he had been wrong to think that it was the nation and that it was actually Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, that was the fulfillment, that was the completion of all of the covenant promises. So in a sense, Saul did not change religion. He did not stop being Jewish. He was completed in his Judaism. He had just been totally wrong in thinking that it was a messianic hope through the nation and for the nation, but that it actually had come in the person of Jesus, whom he met and called Lord. And then he was schooled and he spent the rest of his life suffering for the commitment that he had made to follow Jesus as the actual fulfillment, the actual outcome of all that had been promised through the Old Testament scriptures. A radicalized ideologue with an encounter with Jesus can be shaken profoundly from the beliefs and from the practices of his or her life. And the third thing is that from that day on he was on mission for Jesus. You see, the point, I think, of the, the radicalized ideologue is that what you have to do is, is begin to parse that out and ask a few questions. What is the thing that is believed? And then what is the practice of communicating that belief? And what is the means of conversion from that belief? So... If you, if you have been radicalized, um, the, the first place that something has to happen is that you discover that the truth, the ideology of your commitment is wrong. And after that, you may have to discover that the way that you are communicating that is wrong. And finally, that the way that you are enforcing conversion from that is wrong, either because it's wrong at the foundation of its ideology or because it is not practicing the truth of its ideology. And there's where good conversations are having, um, being held within the context of Christianity and Islam. Is Islam a religion of peace or is Islam not a religion of peace at the core? I mean, what is that ideology? Because most of the terrorism, just simply citing the statistics, most of the terrorism is coming from a means of communicating and conversion that is 
humanly unacceptable, unacceptable. Violence and murder and bombing and all of that in, in nobody's book can be tolerated as a legitimate way to communicate or to convert people from and into a faith. The thing to follow that up with is that Saul immediately knew that he needed to be on mission. And his mission would be correcting all of those things. So his mission would be to correct, first of all, what is it that he fundamentally believed? And he now fundamentally believed that Jesus is the Messiah who is the one who is the crowned king. He is Lord. So when, when Saul bowed the knee and said, who are you, Lord? He was, he was getting to second base. He was getting to the base after Savior, to the base of Lord, whereby Jesus said, you are persecuting me. And when Ananias schooled Saul, Saul came to understand that Jesus came as the Messiah. He came to provide the forgiveness of sins, and he came to present himself as Lord. Not just as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, but as sovereign Lord. And so Saul's intuition was right. Who are you, Lord? You're right. I am Lord. Now I'll tell you what you must do. So Saul had to go back to the ideology and understand what it was. And then he spent his life correcting Jewish thinking about what God was like and what righteousness was and how it could be attained. But Saul also had to bow the knee and say, I have encountered the living Savior who is my Lord, and I will do what he tells me to do. And it's interesting that Jesus speaks to Ananias and says, there's this guy Saul, here's where you'll find him. He needs to learn how much he will suffer for my name. And you think that's an interesting way to characterize what Saul is going to have to spend his life doing. Suffering? Why is Jesus not saying to Ananias, because he knows the truth, we're going to take him and we're going to use his, his zeal that was wrongly directed to be directed by the truth. And he can be as forceful in a good way as he was in a bad way to communicate that and to convert people. But what Saul learned um, was that the way God works is not the way that we work at all. And so full circle, back to the persecution of the church being what God blessed and used, all that we've been learning about who Jesus is and how Jesus is and the ways of the kingdom are that they are radically different from what humans might concoct and might think. So when we see um, the opportunity to, to shake the foundations and get the truth, then we go and say, if that is true, how, do you deliver it the same way that other ideologies are delivered? And when people convert, do you convert them the same way? And you end up saying, no, on, on all scores, no. When we know the truth about Christianity, and the more Jesus does, the more he tells us, the more we begin to get a bit of an inkling where, no, not that way, not by power, not by politics, not by force, by servanthood, by humility, by shame, by death. Those are the ways that Christianity is communicated and by which conversion is invited into our faith. All the more reason that we find what happened at Christ Church heinous. To use that method and somehow attach it to 
the Christian faith, however loosely that might have been done, is abhorrent to us because the way that Jesus commends our communication is not by power or force or violence ever. So we need to be radicalized in our ideology, but we need to be radicalized on the Bible's terms. What does it mean to be radical lovers of people? That, that would be the way that would present itself to us to go forward in saying, just as there's a passion that seems to be mandated from these various faiths and ideologies, there's a passion that should be mandated out of our faith, which is that Jesus conquered the world by dying, and that the early believers considered it an honor that they could be worthy of the shame of being like him. And they loved people deeply and consistently. Violence is not the Christian answer. Force is not the Christian answer. But if we meet Jesus, um, we will go on mission for him. But we will understand that the terms of that kind of mission are not the campaign of a radical, not the campaign of terrorism, not the campaign of force. It's the campaign of love and servanthood and gentleness and humility. So let us go on that campaign. When people meet Jesus, they don't meet somebody who has good ideas. They don't meet somebody who answers little prayers for them. They meet someone who is the Lord of the universe. And they must obey him. So, so must we. We are called not to consider Jesus. We are called to encounter Jesus. And he will sometimes just stop us in our tracks and say, stop. This is me. Now here's what you're going to do. I trust you've met him and you've been ready to say to him, yes, whatever. Lord, yes, you are. Because in the world today, as God made the church grow through persecution... God is thriving his church around the world by persecution and by visions and miracles and dreams of Isa. It's happening every day all over the world because this is the truth. And so let us pursue it with all of the vigor that we have.